Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm KG Kimaladun. Today we take you to the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations in Rockland, Maine, where Dr. Stephen Simon examines what went wrong between the United States and the Middle East. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. It will be archived on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to hear this program again at your convenience and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. The program will also be available as a podcast. Introducing Dr. Simon today is George Look, Midcoast Forum President. Good afternoon, and it's good to see all of you here today. And I'd also like to welcome our audience listening on the stations of Maine Public Radio. This is the 441st meeting of the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations. Today's meeting is coming to you from the Elks Events Center in Rockland, Maine, and I'm George Look, president of the forum. The Midcoast Forum was founded in 1983. Each month, we invite a foreign affairs expert to speak and answer questions on an issue critical to the formulation of U.S. foreign policy. Audios of past forum talks, information about upcoming forum programs, and information on how to become a forum member are available on our website at midcoastforum.org. We are pleased today to have Stephen Simon with us to speak on the U.S. and the Middle East, what went wrong. Dr. Stephen Simon is the Robert E. Wilhelm Fellow at the Center for International Studies of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He has had a prolific career in government, private industry, and academia. In government, Dr. Simon served as the National Council, I'll get this. In government, Dr. Simon served as the National Security Council Senior Director for the Middle East and North Africa during the Obama administration and as a, the Senior Director for Counterterrorism in the Clinton White House. These assignments followed a 15-year career at the U.S. Department of State. Between government assignments, Dr. Simon was a Principal and Senior Advisor to Good Harbor LLC in Abu Dhabi and Director of the Middle East Office of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Manama. He has managed security-related projects at the RAND Corporation and was a senior fellow for the Middle, Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, all very prestigious positions. Dr. Simon has been a professor of history at Amherst College, a lecturer in government at Dartmouth College, and most recently, professor in the practice of international relations at Colby College here in Maine. He has held fellowships at Brown University, Oxford University, and the American Academy in Berlin. In addition to his current MIT fellowship, he continues to work as a non-resident senior research analyst with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statescraft in Washington, D.C. During Dr. Simon's time at MIT, he is pursuing a project related to the liquidation of imperial commitments, exploring the effects of the War of, on Terror on the United States, and writing a monograph on the history of U.S.-Middle East relations from 1979 to the present. The monograph, entitled The Long Goodbye, the United States and the Middle East from the Islamic Re Revolution to the Arabic Arab Spring, will be released later this year. Dr. Simon has co-authored several books, including 
The Pragmatic Superpower, the United States and the Middle East in the Cold War, published by W.W. Norton in 2016, and Our Separate Ways, published by Public Affairs Books, also in 2016. Very distinguished career, and I wanted to welcome Stephen to the Mid-Coast Forum. Thanks, George, for that great introduction. I really appreciate it. Um, <laughs> when I listen to it, it seems pretty ridiculous, but you know, there it is, like a guy who can't keep a job. Um, <clears throat> okay, so there's there's something you know really ironic about uh, being here to talk about uh, the U.S. and the Middle East when, for a change, the U.S. and the Middle East aren't in the headlines. Uh, you know, it, it's a it's all, it's all Ukraine now. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, here I am uh, to talk about the U.S. and the Middle East, and from, a, from the perspective that the U.S. Um, uh, and the Middle East don't have much to offer each other, you know, at this point, um, and, and just when we're facing the prospect of the, the, really the first European war since the Balkan Wars of the 19... 90s, so there's an irony here. Um, maybe just think of this talk about the U.S. and the Middle East as just a breath of fresh air. In, uh... So, uh, actually, let me, let me tell you how I'm going to go about this uh, discussion just very briefly. First, I'm going to start by framing the big question, uh, for me anyway, which is how did we get from there to here? and then answer that question by reviewing American approaches to the region by successive administrations since Ronald Reagan's. Now, I served in all these administrations, so my assessment uh, will be flavored by you know, personal experience. I'll end by saying a few things about the two countries uh, around which US policy has revolved uh, in these years, Israel and Saudi Arabia. Essentially, the case I'm making is that the U.S. achieved its objectives in the Middle East from nearly the beginning of the Republic through the first phase of the Carter administration with relatively little effort. But thereafter, the United States took an interventionist stance that failed to secure U.S. interests at substantial cost to ourselves and to the peoples of the Middle East. Okay, think back, September 1982, Ronald Reagan dispatched U.S. Marines to Lebanon, and he told the American people, as he did so, quote, we owe it to ourselves and to our children. The whole world will be a safer place when this region, which has known so much trouble, can begin to know peace instead. Now, his predecessor, Jimmy Carter, had declared that the United States would not tolerate any threats to our oil, uh, as was commonly said at the time, but Reagan was not talking about warning off oil poachers in the Persian Gulf. By turning a local mashup of ethnic and religious vendettas and Israeli and Syrian maneuvering for territorial advantage into a cause with vast global consequences and multi-generational importance to all Americans, Reagan had redefined the stakes. Now, 34 years later, Barack Obama told a former Senate colleague, quote, there is no way we should commit to governing the Middle East and North Africa 
that would be a basic fundamental mistake, unquote. Donald Trump, in the wake of a devastating Iranian air attack on two Arabian American oil company uh, installations in Saudi Arabia <clears throat> that took half of Saudi production offline, tweeted that, quote, we don't need Middle Eastern oil and gas, unquote. He then cast doubt on Iranian responsibility for the attack and declared that if the U.S. did intervene on the kingdom's behalf, it would be on a fee-for-service basis. Thank you. Okay, so how did we go from a belief that a regional tussle over a small patch of land was an historic battle that would affect the entire world to a decisive rejection of the Middle East as an arena for U.S. intervention? even as half of Saudi Arabia's oil production was knocked out by an Iranian attack. Okay, so let's go farther back into the past to delve into this. After World War II, communist encroachment in Western Europe made reconstruction there supremely urgent. The American response was the Marshall Plan, we all know about that, which brought to impoverished European countries food supplies, equipment, and so forth. But the redevelopment of industrial infrastructure there, especially in Germany and France, needed one more ingredient, and that was oil. This essential commodity had to come from the Middle East. The British could get theirs from Iran, the rest of the oil for Europe had to come from the Arab side of the Gulf, mainly from Saudi Arabia. The U.S. took on Saudi Arabia as its informal protectorate. American geologists had identified the kingdom's biggest oil deposits uh, just before World War II. Now, the United States and Britain, it all seems very far-fetched now, but it is quite intense at the time. The United States and Britain assumed that the Soviets were aware of this Western dependency on Gulf oil and were preparing to exploit it by smashing through Iran and Iraq, seizing oil fields on the way to the Suez Canal and choking off Western shipping. In retrospect, the distances involved seemed vast and the threat exaggerated. But a glance at the map shows that the route from Crimea across the Black Sea and through Turkey down to the Arabian Peninsula or along the coast of Palestine to Sinai and the Suez Canal is actually not that long. Likewise, a Soviet army road march from Azerbaijan through Iran across Iraq and Jordan to either the oil fields of northeastern Saudi Arabia or to the Suez Canal would have been a manageable task for the, for the Soviet army, for the Red Army. Making things uh, even more uh, challenging uh, for the West was the fact that before the B-52 bomber and the development of intercontinental ballistic missiles, the US and UK also needed Middle East bases from which to launch nuclear attacks against the USSR in the event of war. Soviet forces in eastern Germany were about a five-hour drive from Paris. Allied bombers, therefore, had to be able to get to Moscow before Soviet armor reached the English Channel. So the Persian Gulf and the broader Middle East, especially Egypt and what was then Palestine, also known as right flank of the Suez Canal and Egyptian air bases, took on a strategic importance. 
Now, the Second World War had also decimated European Jewry. Survivors, penned up in miserable camps and unable or unwilling to return to the countries where they had suffered so much, had to be settled somewhere. And as the British, who were running Palestine at the time, observed rather archly, uh, Washington would much rather have these Jews in Palestine than at American ports of entry. Now, in November 1947, a broken, bloodied Britain, eager to shed its responsibility for Palestine, got the United Nations, with US and Soviet backing, to split Palestine into Arab and Jewish territories, resulting in a new Jewish state, Israel, while the Arab parts were absorbed by Jordan and Egypt. Now, the US at this point kept its distance from Israel, whose socialist politics raised suspicions about its alignment with the West in a Cold War context, and whose unpopularity in the Arab world rendered it a strategic liability for any of its Western friends. As Pentagon and State Department government opponents of Israeli independence lamented, however, the US would be on the hook to rescue Israel from what some saw as an inevitable and irresistible Arab onslaught. Despite all this, the US military presence in the region remained quite small. President Eisenhower kept the United States out, with the small exception of an easy-on, easy-off deployment of a marine contingent to influence the outcome of a political fracas in Beirut, and the not-so-small exception of backing a British coup against an Iranian nationalist in 1953. In 1956, Eisenhower hammered Britain, France, and Israel for invading Egypt and pulled back from a coup against the Syrian government in 1957. Both John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Baines Johnson also steered clear of the region. Kennedy, by the way, did get along with Egypt's radical leader, Gamal Nasser, uh, up to a point, and he sold weapons to Israel despite his problem with Israel's nuclear program, which was just beginning at that time. But Kennedy was a liberal, and he was entranced by liberation movements, and both post-colonial Egypt and the new state of Israel qualified. The Johnson administration was so loath to intervene in the Middle East, it passed up the chance to prevent the Six-Day War of 1967 and thereby preserve the existing order in the Middle East. And he did have options to do this. But Johnson feared a congressional backlash. He faced Pentagon foot-dragging and was too preoccupied by the escalating Vietnam War to act. An isolated Israel, therefore, launched near-perfect preemptive attacks against its neighbors. This was a rare case when the US sinned by omission rather than commission. The regional order dismantled by the Six-Day War was far from perfect, but it was better than the one that emerged from its wreckage, at least in the view of some. The resulting instability led to a devastating Arab-Israeli war six years later, and shifts in domestic politics of the regional states that are still playing out. For most of the Cold War period until 1971, it was Britain, not the United States, that maintained the only serious military presence in the region. 
With US forces deployed to Korea and elsewhere in Asia and in Europe, Washington was only too happy to play the free rider in the Middle East. Britain had 100,000 troops in Palestine until 1947 and thousands of soldiers in Egypt until 1954 and for a few months uh, again in 1956. In Iraq, British bases lasted until the 1958 revolution that ended British influence in that country. They had troops in Yemen until 1967 and around the Persian Gulf until 1971. That year, Great Britain struck its colors east of Suez for the last time, leaving Gulf security to an American administration tied down in Vietnam and coping with demonstrations and riots at home. Now, as the sun was setting on Britain's moment in the Middle East, Richard Nixon was settling into the White House. Rather than police the Gulf, he deputized Saudi Arabia and Iran to do so, arming and advising their militaries while keeping US forces over the horizon. He stuck to this approach throughout his time in office, as did Gerald Ford, his successor. Even the Arab-Israeli crisis of 1973 and Saudi use of the oil weapon against the United States failed to prompt direct military intervention by Washington. Jimmy Carter's Middle East interests lay in what became as the peace process, became known as the peace process. Now, the peace process was shorthand, uh, a shorthand term for diplomacy aimed at bringing peace to Israel and its Arab neighbors. His intense focus produced a peace treaty between Israel and Egypt, forged in a marathon negotiation at Camp David in 1978, and sealed with the deal the following March in 1979. This was a significant achievement. Whether it qualified as strategically vital for the United States is debatable. Carter's fear was, was that renewed war between Israel and Egypt would trigger yet another Arab oil embargo to punish the United States for its support for Israel. With Cold War tensions still rising and the after effects of the Arab oil embargo of 1973 and 74 still throttling the economy, the importance attached to Carter's peace process is understandable, certainly even in retrospect. But was it truly strategic compared to the growing threat during this period to the Shah of Iran, who was, after all, the linchpin of US Gulf security strategy at a time when Saudi oil was extremely important? By 1978, after all, both Egypt and Israel were in the American camp. The prospects of war between them uh, were nil. Quite apart from their talks brokered by Washington, Israeli and Egyptian diplomats and soldiers engaged in their own quiet discussions during this period. In strategic terms, the Camp David Accords did not prevent another war between Israel and Egypt. Rather, it ceremonially marked the eclipse six years earlier of the age of Israel-Egypt wars. Now, regrettably, Carter, perhaps distracted uh, by the prospect of an Arab-Israeli peace, failed to anticipate an impending revolution in Iran and had not been prepared to intervene to help a vital ally, the Shah, ride out the protests that forced him to flee Tehran. Now, Carter 
uh, it's just been shown in a recent in a recent book, a very good one by um, a person named Ray Take, um, did authorize planning for a counter coup against the militant clerical regime that opposed the Shah's rule and launched a military operation, Eagle Claw, to free the American captives of the Iranian regime, which failed. But all this was too little too late. Could Carter have done anything at that stage? The deployment of forces to the region might have stiffened the Shah's spine. But even this, would it have made a difference? Who knows? Probably not. The Shah was a sick man and a maladroit ruler. Hatred for him was volcanic, of course. And, he would have, and it would have been morally wrong to endorse, let alone abet, the massacre of unarmed protesters. Now, these questions are still debated, but the fact was that the overthrow of the Shah was a profound reversal of fortune for the United States, plunging it into the maelstrom. It's really after 1979 that we first see Americans firing on its adversaries in the region with increasing intensity. First, anti, first against anti-Christian forces in Lebanon, then against Gaddafi, then against Iran, then against Iraq, then against Somalia, and against Iraq again, in a massive way, and Libya again, and Syria, and once again, Iran. So let's take these administrations one by one. I'll do this pretty crisply, fear not. Okay, so look, many would agree that it was Reagan who fired this starting gun of America's interventionist moment by introducing troops into Lebanon in 1982, first as neutral peacekeepers, then as defenders of civilization, as Robert McFarlane, the mastermind of the, invention, described, of, of the intervention, described the mission. The, uh, <laughs> some minor Lebanese politicians were threatening Western civilization, in his view. While there, the United States, left exposed by Israel's precipitous withdrawal from the high ground overlooking American forces bivouacked in Beirut below, was defeated by Iran and Syria. The U.S. Embassy in Beirut was bombed twice, and 241 U.S. Marines were killed in their barracks. Now, a lingering instinct for restraint, reinforced by Reagan's cautious defense secretary, prevented escalation. Now, for all his deep flaws, I mean, that's, I guess, speaking personally, but for all his deep flaws, Reagan understood the limits of U.S. power and grasped the importance of Iran, despite, or perhaps because of the threat it posed to U.S. interests in the region. His attempt to reopen lines of communication with Tehran via arms sales brokered by Israel did, I admit, have a loony dimension. But at the same time, it was farsighted, even if it was undermined and ultimately doomed by radicals in Tehran and a felonious White House aide, Oliver North, who illegally funneled the profits from secret arms sales to Iran to US-backed insurgents fighting a leftist government in Nicaragua. Outreach to Iran replicated the route Reagan took successfully towards the Soviet Union. I mean, he was, he had this in mind. But alas, there was no equivalent to a reform-minded Mikhail Gorbachev in Tehran. 
So there was a crucial piece that was, that was lacking. Now, the, the, the administration of George Herbert Walker Bush failed to deter Iraq from invading Kuwait in 1990. The administration was too eager for grain sales from Kansas pushed by Senator Dole um, to uh, crack down on the Saddam regime. President Bush likened Saddam to Hitler, again raising the stakes, because once you've likened your enemy to Hitler, that does raise the question of whether you can get away with just slapping him on the wrist, saying, now that you've given part of Czechoslovakia back, all is forgiven. You can't, you can't really do that. So um, he likened uh, Iraq's ruler Saddam Hussein to Hitler, and he decided to use force, but without a firm grip on his war aim, which was the liberation of Kuwait. Now, war aims, as, as, as we know, often shift as a conflict unfolds. War aims can shift with the fortunes of war. In this case, what started out as the expulsion of Iraqi forces from Kuwait drifted toward the destruction of Iraq's armed forces, the encouragement of revolts within Iraq, and ultimately regime change. With the Soviet Union near collapse and the US the sole remaining superpower, Bush characterized intervention as the forerunner of, in his words, a new world order, again, raising raising the stakes. But intelligence, military, and political errors were making regime change impossible, even as the Bush administration's commitment to it deepened. So, flawed intelligence assessments led to an overestimation of Iraqi military capabilities. This led to an overly cautious war plan. This, in turn, led to the escape of key Iraqi army units, the very ones that Saddam Hussein relied on for the survival of his regime from Kuwait. The lopsided nature of the war then led the White House to declare a ceasefire prematurely, preventing US forces from catching up to the escaping Iraqi divisions and destroying them. U.S. concessions in the ceasefire agreement then left Saddam free to suppress revolts that did break out. And the immediate removal of U.S. troops from the region, the, the American tactical air power was removed within 24 or 48 hours of the end of hostilities. That the removal of all those forces stripped the United States of the ability to impose its will on Iraq and bring Saddam to heel. The shift from liberating Kuwait to imposing regime change and disarmament on Iraq was not simply a minor adjustment, and we need to be clear about that. The new war aim would ultimately require the immense force haphazardly assembled by Bush's son in 2003 and years of military occupation. Now, with the bulk of U.S. forces headed back home to victory parades and Saddam's Republican Guard divisions back in their garrisons or attacking Kurds and Shiites that had relied on the U.S., Bush lacked the means to achieve his newly enlarged war aims. 
Well, certainly neither Bush 43 nor Clinton could dislodge Saddam or even assure themselves after eight years of nearly unimpeded access to Iraqi territory that his regime had been stripped of weapons of mass destruction. Now, George H.W. Bush was limited to one term. So in fairness, we will never know how he would have preserved the new world order and his apparently unworkable post-war arrangements, but his electoral loss drew an inexperienced Bill Clinton into an open-ended military commitment in the Persian Gulf without an obvious exit. Politically trapped by the glow surrounding Bush's 100-hour war, Clinton was also a believer in the New World Order. Yes, he was. And hamstrung by an unnecessary commitment to containing both Iran and Iraq, instead of letting them contain each other, which had always been the plan. In the process, the US destroyed Iraq's economy, decimated its middle class, and literally starved its children. Saddam, needless to say, lacked for nothing. Both Clinton and George H.W. Bush had tried to fix the Arab-Israeli problem while fixing Iraq, but without taking into account changes in Israeli society and politics and in Palestinian politics that would make reconciliation highly unlikely. From the perspective of <coughs> conventional wisdom, the failure of the Arab-Israeli process was the result of bad breaks, poor timing, tactical mistakes. According to this narrative, timid political leaders unaware of their supposedly latent ability to win their people's acceptance of controversial peace agreements, also had their share of the blame. Now, to be fair, on a couple of occasions, Israel and Syria and Israel and the Palestinians did seem close to an agreement. But the repeated failure to cross the finish line was due to something deeper than hard luck. Israel's rightward shift had, be, had been underway for decades, and Palestinians had grown skeptical, if not cynical, about the prospects for independence. It is undeniable that there were spoilers, radicals on both sides, seeking to kill off the peace process, but such spoilers are most effective when their desired endgame requires just a slight nudge. And that seems to have been the case. Well, the peace process elite in successive administrations was so committed to finding a fix, they averted their gaze from a fundamental conundrum, which, to put it starkly, is that uh, Israel's necessary creation and Palestinians' inevitable dispossession was at the heart of, of the matter. Israelis couldn't admit to themselves or others that the ingathering of survivors from the Nazi inferno had hurt Palestinians. Arabs could not concede that Israelite and Jewish links to Palestine were 3,000 years old and that Jews were therefore not usurpers, but returnees. Well, the power disparity was also a factor. The power disparity between Israel and Palestinians, that just grew wider year by year and made compromise ever more unlikely. So when George W. Bush took office, George Walker Bush took office in 2001, he, like Clinton, was trapped in Iraq. 
In retrospect, there was just one long Gulf War with combat bracketing 10 or 12 years of economic warfare. Now, by the late 1990s, towards the end of Clinton's second term, the US was just left with three options. Rehabilitate Iraq, just say, look, uh, never mind. Continue a policy of sanctions and skirmishes that wasn't really getting to yes. Or kill Saddam, those were the three options. Initially, Bush seemed to feel that the US involvement in the Middle East was misplaced and that focus should be restored to Europe and Asia. Sound familiar? His stance toward China was particularly assertive and led to a crisis the summer of 2001 as China downed a US spy plane. It was a very tense moment. Now, the shock of 9-11, itself a delayed result of Operation Desert Storm, tilted the balance toward war, from which it was thought a new Iraq would emerge that would be the perfect platform for American power projection in the Middle East. Now, Iraq was targeted in part because members of the Bush administration thought that Saddam connived with al-Qaeda to attack the US on 9-11, and because of the unresolved outcome of the first Gulf War. So it's not a stretch to say that the elder Bush was in effect responsible for his son's mistake. The one thing I think we can say definitively about this period is that it left Iran in a greatly improved position. In fact, the destruction of the Saddam regime unleashed Iranian power and ambition, which was to cause much heartache in Washington. Okay, so now we're in, we're in the epilogue, because uh, Obama, Trump, and Biden repudiated much of this legacy. Obama had two related objectives. The first was to stick to George Walker Bush's timetable for removing troops from Iraq by mid-2011, and the second was to block Iran's path to a nuclear weapon. He did both things. The Iraq drawdown on schedule and a negotiated deal with Iran in 2015. Each, as, as you might agree, uh, had a disappointing uh, aftermath. Like his predecessors, he tried to reinvigorate the peace process, and like his predecessors, he failed for many of the same reasons. The Arab Spring, popular uprisings against authoritarian rulers beginning in December 2010, took Obama briefly back onto an interventionist past. He facilitated a NATO war on Libya, intending to overthrow the Gaddafi regime. Gaddafi was the dictator of that sad country. The campaign succeeded, if only just, but the post-revolutionary landscape was chaotic and bloody. Libya never recovered, while outside powers, Turkey, Russia, the Gulf states, backed different contenders for power. With catastrophic interventions like Iraq and Libya in the background, and growing anxiety about Chinese maneuvering in the Pacific, Obama embarked on a reversal of the activist tide that had risen under Reagan. In astonishing interviews toward the end of his administration, Obama made it clear that the Middle East was best avoided and certainly not a venue for the use of force, especially when important goals, such as limits on Iran's nuclear program, could be met through diplomacy at much lower cost. 
Now, he described his signature intervention, the overthrow of Libya's Gaddafi, as a quote-unquote shit show. He made it clear that the U.S. was not going to get rid of uh, Assad, the Syrian dictator, on behalf of his domestic opponents. He disavowed regime change in Iran and any attempt to force the liberalization of Egyptian or Gulf Arab politics. He rejected the notion of a White House-led diplomatic effort to change Israel's policy toward the Palestinians. And although he launched a campaign against the Islamic State, it was measured, involved relatively small numbers of US troops, and was waged largely through proxy forces. For Obama, it was time to rebalance US commitments toward Asia. Trump and Biden have perpetuated Obama's emphasis on the Western Pacific. Trump warmly embraced the Saudis in the hope of probably financial gain. It's hard to, it's hard to say. Um, as we know, he did nothing when Saudi Arabia was attacked by Iran. Um, with his evangelical constituency in mind, um, uh, Donald Trump moved the U.S. Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Um, a symbolic act. I don't think it really um, was harmful uh, to uh, any U.S. interest one way or the other, nor did it help any uh, U.S. interest. He ordered U.S. forces to leave Syria after declaring victory over the Islamic State, but was so distracted, actually, it took him a year to find out that act nobody actually moved the troops. They're still there. He was, yeah, no, he was really irked by this, and I, and I don't blame him. Now, his, he had three truly bold moves, and these were withdrawing, Iran from, withdrawing from the nuclear deal with Iran in 2018, the spectacular killing of Qasem Soleimani, the commander of Iran's expeditionary forces in 2020, and abandoning the two-state solution. The fallout from these maneuvers tended to illustrate the dangers of intervention that Trump was otherwise careful to avoid in North Korea, Europe, and elsewhere. On the nuclear side, U.S. withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal and intensified sanctions on Iran have predictably allowed Iran to depart from the deal too. Between then and now, they have come far closer to creating weapons-grade fuel and could probably build a bomb uh, with uh, two months warning, which is down from uh, the year um, uh, worth of warning that had uh, been provided by the agreement the United States left. Biden is trying to get back into it. It remains to be seen whether he will do it. The targeted killing of Soleimani in Iraq was an especially risky initiative because it legitimized assassination. And, um, you know, we, we have senior officials and politicians that other countries would like to assassinate uh, is, as well. So it's a bad precedent. But he also uh, trampled on Iraqi sovereignty in doing so because he killed this Iranian official in, in Iraq, which, you know, thousands of Americans died for, you know, for Iraqi independence and sovereignty. And then to, uh, to do that was a little bit, um, uh, a little bit perverse. Um, okay, so I, I'm gonna uh, end here, but just with one very short observation, which is that you know, in a way, the U.S. post-war objectives in the Middle East have revolved around the survival and, and viability of, of two states, Israel and Saudi Arabia. And, you know, despite this dismal record 
um, that I've just sort of walked us all through. At the end of the day, no one can question the survivability or viability or vitality for that matter of Israel and Saudi Arabia. And the way we know that the policy really worked is that these two states now feel so self-confident that they're at liberty to defy the United States on key strategic issues. So, what more could you ask for? Well, thank you very much. Um, we're going to be gathering questions, and I always take this opportunity to ask one of my own. Uh, so every time I read anything about the Middle East or, or hear talk on the Middle East, I'm uh, restruck by how complicated everything is. Uh, and maybe you've done it with your conclusion, is our, our goal is the survival of these two states and we're succeeding, but how can you really rationalize all the competing goals and interests in this and have a, a coherent policy to move forward? Is there a coherent policy for the Middle East or is it always just kind of fumbling our way through? Well, yeah. There, there has been. I think, and, and it's signified by the profound attention that successive administrations have given to Saudi oil and uh, the security of Israel. I think that's, those have been the lodestars, the, um, the organizing principles of US policy. And, and U.S. policy was, was successful for reasons that, that I, I, I just mentioned, you know, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, um, uh, but also because the United States succeeded in keeping these two relationships going without, without shortchanging either one, despite the fact that these two relationships were regarded by many as incompatible and irreconcilable. So I think, you know, we're talking about some pretty deft diplomacy over the course of, of time. And I think those, those organizing principles, Saudi Arabia and oil and Israel, which is implicated in American domestic politics and American sentiment, um, and, uh, and is shadowed by the Holocaust. I think you know, that, uh, that attachment was a foregone conclusion and very powerful. Thank you. Uh, we've got a couple of questions here on, on uh, U.S. intelligence capabilities. And why was our intelligence so poor in many of these critical situations? And why haven't we upped our game in the region? <laughs> Uh, yeah. Um, well, there have been uh, some intelligence shortfalls uh, over, <laughs> over the years. I mean, the, the Iranian uh, revolution uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't really anticipated. Uh, but, but that 
That was due to an idiosyncratic set of circumstances. I mean, in the, in, in, in the first instance, the Shah um, did not give uh, American intelligence assets in, in Tehran, that is not assets, American intelligence officials in Tehran access to ordinary Iranians. Uh, what they would have done with that access is hard to say because I don't, I'm not sure there were any Farsi speakers actually in the, in the CIA station in, um, uh, in Tehran uh, yeah, at, uh, yeah, at the time. Um, but also, there was a circular reasoning at work, which is to say, if, if the Shah were in trouble, we would hear about it. And since we didn't hear about it, the Shah was therefore not in trouble. So there was a mix of lack of capacity, the Iranian government's own policy uh, regarding access for US intelligence officials to Iranians, and this kind of circular logic that was very seductive. Um, the United States didn't really see the Arab Spring coming, but it, you know, that was one of those um, you know, historical events that everyone expected but was nonetheless surprised by. It's a, it's a bit paradoxical, but there was a sense that at some point the pressures would, would increase and things would, um, uh, would, would blow. But uh, in 9-11, well, 9-11 was the big one. 9-11 was the big one. And because um, uh, it reshaped the United States. And in, and in a sense, you could you could argue that this intelligence failure had, um, you know, just deep, deep consequences for American politics and society and, and, and culture. And there, you know, the fault was, um, you know, it was sort of quotidian, you know, failure of one agency to talk to another agency, the failure of a particular piece of information to be passed uh, from here to there, um, the fact that uh, some of the people involved in paving the way for the attackers uh, to establish a presence in the United States uh, were employees of a foreign government. So um, you know, there were there were really tough, you know, tough issues. But none of them are, you know, taken together. They're enormous, but each singly. They were, they were small errors that just ramified. There's no such thing as a small error, I think, in, these, in this part of the world. That's how I see it. Um, well, here's a general question on, on uh, the way forward, again. Do you see any future for the One Democratic State campaign as a resolution for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Now that we're known on the two-state two solution seems to be out of favor. Well, there, uh, the, the Israelis won't, you know, countenance, um, you know, a binational state. So, uh, and, and the Israelis hold the cards. So if, if, it's, if they don't think that that's in their interest, they're not going to do it. I mean, what social scientists would tell you is that binational states where the, the, the two sides are roughly matched in terms of population, let's say, uh, tend not to do well and outcomes are biased towards, towards violence. The binational states only work when one side is really strong and the other is not. So I don't, I don't see that as a way forward. So let's go back to the peace process. Uh, how did 
Carter have as much success as he did with the peace process? Is there anything we should have continued or any lessons we should have learned for the peace process on the way forward? No, because the, the thing about the Israeli-Egypt um, treaty is that what was up for negotiation was negotiable. So I, 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 I say that, you know, with somewhat sardonically, but, the, but look at it this way. The Sinai Peninsula was of no intrinsic interest to Israel. None. Normalization with Egypt was of intrinsic interest to Israel. Um, from the Egyptian perspective, the Sinai Peninsula was really, really important. And normalization of relations with Israel would be expensive in Egyptian foreign policy terms, but domestically, uh, perhaps sustainable because the Egyptians had the option, after all, of a cold peace. So we'll make peace with Israel, but then we won't do anything. Uh, and that, that created trade space for the Israelis and, uh, and the Egyptians. And Carter's personal attention, his focus on this uh, for weeks um, uh, in an enclosed environment with the principles of both sides, you know, could, could bang heads and, and make it work. Thank you. Um, then on to some on the, the uh, nuclear agreement. Uh, one, is, one question that's been asked is, Israel opposes the, the Iran nuclear agreement, and we all know that. From their standpoint, what's the alternative? Well, you know, if you're Israeli, you're sure as hell not going to want to see a nuclear uh, Iran. So there are two ways, uh, well, really maybe three ways of preventing that outcome. The, the one that Obama pressed was to negotiate a long-term suspension of the Iranian program. Uh, and a suspension that would set back its acquisition of, of a nuclear weapon by 15 years. And, you know, in 15 years, well, who knows, anything could happen, you know? Um, then there's war, and that's where those who want to see Iran's program uh, ended actually uh, bomb it to smithereens and force the Iranians to keep rebuilding it. And then there's sort of a middle ground that the Israelis and for a time the United States um, were relying on, which was uh, essentially sabotage. And, uh, and from the Israeli side, we don't do this, but from the Israeli side, there was targeted killing of, of Iranian scientists. So those are the three paths. Um, the one path in which there's Iranian buy-in, so there's some prospect uh, for tranquility, at least for a decade and a half, was that was the one that was rejected you know, by, uh, by Israel and, 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 and then by Trump. So now uh, we're basically back to these other two options. And uh, if you talk to people in Washington who are uh, involved in the, dip in the dip diplomacy, 
that's now ongoing, you know, they will tell you that their big fear is that if the United States and, the, and, the, and these other countries and Iran can't agree on putting the, the deal back on track, then the Israelis will attack Iran uh, with um, uh, unknown consequences for U.S. interests. So there's, there's, some, there's some fear there. Not everybody believes that, but those who are involved in the negotiations seem to um, uh, worry about that, that prospect. And how about Lebanon? Viability, the viability of Lebanon, a truly failed state. Uh, Lebanon is truly a failed state. What does this mean for its neighbors and for the region in general? If it had any significance for the region in general, it wouldn't be failing right now. Okay. That's simple. Um, here's one that's a little more complicated. Could you comment on Ken Pollock's thesis that the dismal performance of Arab enemies from armies from uh, 1948 on, which he attributes to governance and societal shortcomings in Arab countries, has been an important factor in the course of the history of the Middle East? Well, that, w that was Ken's PhD dissertation. <laughs> so, <laughs> he's read a lot more about, <laughs> about this than, uh, than, than, than I have. But yeah, to be sure, militaries are a reflection of their societies. Um, you know, the way, the way people look at militaries um, uh, now since, well, Ken has actually just done another version, another edition of his, uh, uh, of his dissertation. But the way people look at Arab armies now is that they're either highly professionalized um, or they're not. And um, there, are, there are some mixed cases, but um, what's, Im what's important in the degree to, uh, that they're, to the extent that they're professionalized, they're more likely to stand aside at times of domestic turmoil wait to see how things turn out and then, and then get back in the game. But where they're not and they're really dependent on a particular ruler, either because of sectarian affiliation or, or other such reasons, then, uh, then they're gonna really jump in and get in the mix, as the Syrian army did, you know, for example, uh, in, uh, in the Civil War there. So TBD. Um. One final question, and this I find very interesting. Kennan was a solid, enduring authority governing our relations with Russia. Has anyone been our Kennan for the Middle East? Is there one person who stands out as, over time as a, as a defining person? Or oh wow, um, that is that's such a great question, actually, um, because. Uh, because I think the answer is no. Um, you know, in, in, in graduate school, they used to, um, in, anyway, one of, one of my ill-fated graduate school uh, adventures, they, they used to say that, you know, every generation of scholars has its own um, Christ. 
And, uh, you know, there is a little bit of that in the Middle East. So, for example, during the second Bush administration, there was a, a Princeton professor, Bernard Lewis, who was extremely, you know, influential. And uh, there were photos, which I, I, at first I thought were photoshopped, um, of George W. Bush uh, walking in the Rose Garden, I think it was, um, uh, holding a copy of Bernard Lewis's book, What Went Wrong. Um, and what went wrong is that, you know, the, the Arabs failed and then they got upset and they uh, uh, got angry at the West or, or, or something. It's, 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 okay, L can I rewind just for a second? Bernard Lewis was a great scholar. So um, he's somewhat controversial, but he's a great scholar. And it, I, I think his work and, and he himself were misused uh, by, by political players as a way to uh, justify um, uh, their march to war uh, after, you know, after 9-11. So um, I think that, you know, but is that a canon? Not, not really. There have been um, senior officials who have um, appeared again and again in successive administrations who've been very influential on Middle East policy. And one of those who's, uh, uh, wrote, a, uh, who's wrote a number of interesting books about his experience, Dennis Ross. Um, I think he's been here, right? Yeah, he's, uh, well, uh, you know, uh, Dennis is, uh, you know, very skilled and deeply informed, and he's been in Republican and Democratic administrations and has been very influential, um, I think, in the shaping of, of Middle East policy. So, but even there, you know, Kennan was a conceptualizer in a way that I don't think these others, you know, are, he's different. Well, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today was a talk from Dr. Stephen Simon. If you missed part of the program or want to hear it again, you can always find it on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to access this program and many other archived Speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from our alarm clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. And Speaking in Maine is produced by me, KG Kimaladu. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio, 93.3.